Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. I've been going super hard lately, making more episodes than I ever have before. I have been super inspired by this whole coronavirus thing, honestly. I have been invigorated and interested, and I want to talk about it. And that's a, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't. I can't stand looking at it anymore, but this whole thing has been so interesting to me. I feel like this is our chance right now to really reevaluate our systems that we live in, to reevaluate our motivational toolkit, why we do the things that we do, and I think that's all so, so important, and we get into this stuff today. The episode that I want to present to you now is with a guy named Daniel Stodigal. Daniel is the son of two scientists in academia. He studied physics, and in professional life, he is a computer programmer. He is also a very deep thinker. He's highly, highly intelligent. He also happens to be one of my closest friends. And we ride our bikes and ski while talking deep philosophy. Daniel is also a adventure racer at the highest level. Adventure racing is this ridiculous sport where they set up these crazy courses that are like hundreds of miles long and teams of four have to orienteer, like navigate their ways through jungles and over mountains and fi find their way to these different checkpoints. These races can last upwards of a week and teams will typically sleep on a, the scale of about 15 to 30 minutes to an hour every day and they'll do that for nine days so the stories of disillusionment that come out of these kind of things are quite entertaining daniel is a total savage um, and has resilience coming out of his ears so i'm stoked to present this podcast to you if you like this show and you want to support it, please consider donating. That is paypal.me slash airy in the air. I could really use some help right now, folks. <laughs> I know a lot of us can, but if you appreciate the show, share it, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. Those are all helpful things and donate. Thank you so much. And without further ado, here is my friend, Daniel Stodigal.
Okay. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the podcast. Stoked to have you here. It's great to be here, man. I'm psyched. Okay. So today I figured we could talk about some of the things that you and I have been ruminating on for quite some time on our mountain bike rides as we years, <laughs> years. Yeah. Years of the Dan and Ari show. Yeah. The Dan and Ari show goes way back, but, um, and we get into such good riffs. I figure we ought share this kind of thing as, as it is increasingly relevant. So and I figured that all Mike hasn't shown up yet. So we're doing it, doing it here and not, up on the mountain like normal. Yeah. Yep. So I figured we could talk about to begin like the things that we're afraid of, because I think that in general, the dichotomy of opinion seems to, as always swing to the poles and ends up finding itself at one radical position or the other one is of hysteria and extreme fear the other is the conspiracy laden internet user who finds themselves warning people of being too afraid and i think that as i've quoted this week a lot there is a lot of room between panic and denial. And mm-hmm. I think that you and I do a good job of inhabiting that space. So I figure we could start with what we're afraid of, and then we'll transcend into the th- silver lining, why this is such a great thing for us right now. And we can kind of talk about complex systems and what that means and what it might look like on the other side of this whole thing, both dark and light. Um, but yeah, let's start with the things that we're kind of afraid of. Yeah, I mean, there's the the funny thing for me is that I don't find myself in that fearful place very much. Um, I don't know why that is. Um, stupidity. But stupidity that could easily be it. That's <laughs> as good of an explanation as any. Um, you know. So, but Devin, my wife, is having having a mild cough or a mild cold. And so in a normal year, it would just be ignore it. Mm-hmm. Probably don't even avoid any behaviors because like, I don't care if I get a mild cold and then move on. And now it's now the, the thing is like, well, what could it be? Could it be the thing? Okay. So should we avoid hanging out with grandparents? What does that mean? Do I, does that mean we don't have any support with kid time? you know, cause the babysitters are gone. So it's down to the grandparents. And if we can't see them, then it's just, just this tiny little pod and we have a lot more childcare to do ourselves. And that's just kind of a crazy like chain of events, you know, it, we're like, everything's a little bit worse, you know, and at each step, it doesn't seem like that much worse, but then you add it all together and it's a lot worse. And I think that's kind of what happens at a, at a social bigger level as well as like every one thing is not so bad, but the fact that they're all happening at the same time has this compounding effect. Yeah. That's the, that's the nature of the meta crisis, right? As we've been talking about. That's right. 
So kind of outline that meta crisis just in the familial terms that you're talking about. What does the meta crisis look like in your, you know, the, the snowball effect from childcare? Yeah. I mean, like the kid, the kid takes a three hour nap or whatever on a good day and he sleeps for 12 hours. So that leaves, you know, nine hours or so where we have to be attentive to him. And he's kind of in the suicide watch phase where he's learned how to climb on top of the bar stool on his own without any help, but hasn't really figured out that if he pushes away from the counter while he's sitting on the bar stool, he will fall over backwards and hit the floor from, you know, four feet up, which is probably not going to kill him, but we definitely want to avoid that particular thing, especially now. So we have to be careful just about creating an environment for him that is reasonable and has a high likelihood of him having a good time. And so that's, that's a lot of time and effort and energy that has to go into that. And so I'm still kind of working and Devin is now teaching online yoga classes and stuff. So she has a lot going on as well, despite the, perhaps even because of the shutdown. And so we just have nine hours of kid time that normally we would spread between me and Devin, a babysitter, maybe another babysitter, my mom, my dad, maybe some neighbors. And it winds up being like just a series of really pleasant one to four hour sections of time with him where it's really easy to enjoy him and it's really easy to have fun and do the cool things. But as soon as that starts being like a long time every day, it becomes more difficult to have like good ideas about what to do with him or how to uh, kind of curate his thing. And it becomes like, okay, here we go again, you know, and it stops being quite as joyful, mm -hmm. which, you know, he recognizes probably before we even do, he's like, what's going on with my parents? What's going on? Like, what's weird. And so that just makes him crankier. It makes him sleep worse. And it just all, you know, layers on top where it's like, well, you know, Devin and I are both really caring, attentive parents, but at the same time, one of the, one of the things that we've built into our lives to help make that be the case is a lot of support, you know, grandparents around friends around babysitters, daycare, like all the things and to have those kind of go away. And at the same time, have to deal with, you know, maybe Devin's cough is going to turn into something bad. You know, it's just like it gets every little thing gets harder as a result of everything else being there. Yeah, totally. And I think that that is an effect that is not uncommon right now, I would imagine. Just like the no, fact it that seems like that's exactly the problem. Yeah. Babysitters across the country are like, yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna sit this one out. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm in a very fortunate position, or Devin and I are in a very fortunate position that, you know, we just decided to to basically pay them to not come, you know, because they're all of our babysitters are in precarious financial positions and it's like well like we want you to still be there when this is all done and so that's you know that's an important thing you know that's one of the things that that we can do to make sure that things 
still exist on the other side of this, right? Like I haven't canceled my gym memberships and all that stuff, even though I'm not going to go for the next, you know, two weeks, month, two months, hmm. 12 months, who knows? Hmm, that's you an know? interesting segue. I feel it's, like it's like how much personal responsibility we all have in holding up the industries that will be strained in this time. That's yeah, like, right. and you know, like the, you know, I, I personally love to travel and I love getting on mm-hmm. commercial airlines, but I don't necessarily feel like I need to make some kind of donation to them right now to keep their operations afloat. And I don't necessarily, yeah, right. like, I think that one of the, it's almost like a holistic health analogy that I would draw. Like typically if your child is going to get sick, do you pump them full of antibiotics immediately or do you kind of let them get sick for a while and kind of let them build up the immunity? Do we kind of let the chips fall where they're going to fall? Right. Yeah. You know, and and it's interesting because the, the airline example is I think an interesting one because that's a classic example of a, antagonistic corporate customer relationship where it's just like they take every opportunity to extract more resources out of me in order to participate in their service. And like, that's just the relationship. Um, There are some airlines that are kind of turning that around a little bit. I feel the pain, especially as someone who travels with his mountain bike all the time. So it's like, you know, the, the cost, the cost of a mountain bike on a particular airline tells you how much they care about you. You know, if it's $200 each way, it's like, Oh yeah, they, they're just, they're just trying to get, get a buck. And if it's free both ways, you're like, Oh, I like this airline. And they, you know, they like me in some weird corporate proxy way. But I think the relationship that I have with, you know, our babysitter or, you know, the rock gym is, is a much more constructive relationship. Um, and not really antagonistic at all, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, it really is interesting to think of the, you know, and that's one of the huge divides right now online. (laughs) People are wondering, you know, the people are on one side, they're saying, okay, shut everything down right now. Like (laughs) the health the public health implications of this are set to be dire if we don't take pretty swift, pretty strong action yesterday, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. On the mm-hmm. other side, there's people saying, if we take those actions, the economy is going to collapse. And right. that is going to kill more people than the virus. And yeah. I think there's a more nuanced and much smaller population online who is saying, and it's my opinion that the virus is going to wreak havoc on human suffering in the medical industry and is going to crash the economy and sequestering the virus and containing it as best we can actually limits the economic fallout to be as small as we can make it. Yeah, right. Like, you know, it's it's a both and situation. And totally. I think that totally. we have, 
you know, one of the things that I'm really afraid of is polarization mm-hmm. even further. I know. And it's even like, just even saying that it's like hard to imagine a society that's more ideologically polarized in America. It's just, yeah. and it's, you know, it ha- it stands a chance to get way worse, way worse. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I, I talked a little bit about this book with you a couple months ago, but there's a, a great Neil Stevenson novel called fall where America divides into two separate entities, essentially one, one that is based in reality and the other one that is not. And that of course is an allegory for the, you know, fake news, whatever that we're experiencing now. Um, but as soon as you untether your worldview from any relationship to reality, you, you cease to have any limits on how far away and how polarized you can get, you know, like there's, there's a natural limit to how much you can disagree when you have a common set of basic building blocks that you're playing with, you know, and in our case, that's like reality. How, how do I stack these pieces of reality together to, to build a coherent view of, you know, my experience. And as soon as like none of those pieces are shared, like none of the experiential context is shared. None of the factual context is shared. There's just nothing connecting you anymore. And I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's kind of that's kind of the point of no return, where there's like no longer a way to communicate because all of the all of the context is gone or the shared context is gone. I totally agree, Daniel. And you know, in some ways we have long held up on the top of the pedestal science as our mm, backbone of communication towards the future. And I think that in mm-hmm general, it doesn't solve the problems or meet the needs at every turn like we have hailed it to. And I think that it falls short of a holistic means of communication. And I have been ruminating on this idea that if humanity were to go to couples counseling that (laughs) (laughs) that. an effective a counselor would likely spend time just teaching the two sides of the story to communicate to one another and have Mm -hmm. some decency, right? Some decency. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we, exactly what you're saying, as we lose our ability to communicate with each other, we lose our ability to unify, to collaborate, to cooperate. Um, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, the relationship, the humanity's marriage is deeply distraught right now, but so deeply stuck. Like it's, there's no divorce here. There's no divorce right. is possible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe not until Mars is habitable, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I think there's a bunch of different problems that, that like we were just talking about kind of stack together to make things especially more difficult. And I think that the one is that the world is really complicated. You know, the, the set of set of factors that all collide 
into reality. Uh, you know, it's a, just a really long list to be able to unpack and kind of make sense of it to the point where it takes, you know, high school, four years of college, and then a couple years in grad school before you can realistically add a piece to the comprehensive like sciencey puzzle. And that's just a huge barrier to entry. And it's not artificial, right? It's not that, you know, like physicists are insisting that you learn a bunch of not, not relevant stuff just to prevent you from discovering new stuff. It's just that the context is so complicated and so multifaceted and, and it just takes a really long time before you understand the current state of the art in order to move it forward in, in these kind of sciencey pieces. Uh -huh. And that's, that's really depressing in a way because it means that, you know, you can't just like roll out of your house and, and, you know, observe the world with your eyes and discover a new physical phenomenon because like that was what all the Greeks were doing, you know? And so the Greeks figured out all the stuff that you could do without complicated tools. And then since then we've just been building tools and building context and building all of the pieces up so that, the, the picture is so much more complete and so much more thorough that it's just, it's difficult to pitch in, you know, it takes 10 years of careful I mean, study before, before you can really make a solid contribution to many of these disciplines. I agree with some of that. I agree with the, with to get yourself on the tip of the spear, you have to like get forged and pounded on intellectually for a long time to be able to cut new ground. Yeah, right. Um, but I also disagree that there is like a set route, uh, particular acad particularly academia, and there is a um, that the existing knowledge always helps. I think that. Just like in our own lives, I think that when we learn things, there is like this RAM. It's like a RAM memory, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's a working memory. It's not a com comprehensive memory. And so we're always like working with the last 12 months of our memory. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm curious right now as to... You know, just like we're talking that the scientific, the scientific method as a means for humanity to cooperate, collaborate, and communicate is proven to be insufficient. And I think that for the last decade, I have been exceedingly weary of the global elites, media, government, warning us that the problem that faces us right now, existentially threatening, the problem that we have to face is global warming. And mm -hmm. I can see the existential threat in global warming and also see the misdirection, the misleading, the control, all of that, because obviously 
for a decade, no one was, you know, there were people who were saying, hey, you know, humanity goes through waves of epidemics and America is completely and totally unprepared for that. Or, you know, our information ecology is totally broken. And so these people who you're saying have to make this existential decision are actually so distrusting of the scientific community because it has been bought and sold in the name of Big Pharma, in the name of ExxonMobil. All these corporations have just bought and sold science and the government has bought and sold science and our, infer, our well of information has been shit in and pissed on for so long that no one can trust it. And so when the scientists finally blare the alarm of global pandemic, global pandemic, global pandemic, they're like, how do we unplug the speaker? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, they're like, oh, well, that's know. so loud. How do we unplug that? Right. When, and I think an example that I, uh, I think perhaps is a little bit more self-contained than, than any of the examples that we've kind of touched on so far is the, the kind of medical, medical fields interaction with women. And so like historically women have been excluded from research, have been ignored, have been treated as if they're exactly the same biologically as men, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like long, long lists of ways in which women have been ignored by the medical profession. And so my perspective on a lot of the um, basic, the, the vaccine hesitancy has been women finally kind of putting it together that they've basically been ignored and side showed by by the medical profession are just like what are you talking about you're not giving me this giving my kid this shot like no right and they finally just like get stand it together up. starts stand up to stand up to this historical like issue and they're just like no like the buck stops here we're done right like 200 years is enough get out of here you know and, yeah, the, and the the, dep the depressing part of that is like the vaccines are, are one of the few super, super, super important, like for community health pieces of the medical system. You know, one of the, one of the reasons that we can actually have a global society is because most of the people are vaccinated against some really heinous things. And, and so it's, it's really like, I see both sides of that where it's like, yes, you know, medicine has, really given short thrift to like 50% of the population. And then when that 50% finds themselves in charge of decision-making around, um, you know, basically children, which they are essentially at this point, and they make a decision, it's, it's really hard for me to blame them for that. Yeah, um, totally. I, I just yesterday read an article about a ultra orthodox Jewish community in New York City who basically the mothers have gone to their orthodox doctors for so long. And when they finally caught wind of the vaccine anti-vax movement, they started asking their doctors who kind of just shrugged them off and didn't address their questions and led them to feeling blown off as mothers. And then yeah, like you're saying, there's almost this revolt and it really shows how emotional we are. Like we're just purely emotional and are, um, mm -hmm. and, but at the same time, 
our feeling of distrust for the medical industry, I think big pharma and being sold a pill for an L is a really long standing thing that's coming to a head, right? Like we're seeing that come to a head in the vaccine debate. As far as the vaccine debate goes, like, yeah, I mean, measles is a pretty, like, gruesome, not gruesome, but it's like, no one, like, it certainly can liked, be. yeah, it, seriously, it can kill you, but it also, like, no one likes the chicken pox, like, that was fucking awful, like, I remember having the chicken pox as a child, that was terrible, yeah. like, it's yeah, right. terrible, and so, mm-hmm. if we could inject something that would rid humanity of that suffering, then of course we should do that. And of course, when you vaccinate 400 million people, the side effects are going to show up in a anecdotally visceral way, right? Absolutely. Statistically insignificant, but anecdotally very powerful. Like my child, you know, this caused autism in my child and well, and that's, and that's an example of one where the causal relationship is non-existent, right? There are well, I mean, hypothetically, where I, I just use that as a, I just use that as an example because basically it's, you know, I think that one of the silver linings of this thing is we are being, uh, our personal actions and our personal ideologies are, are becoming clearer and clearer as how interconnected they are with our humanity and our societies. Yeah. So like whether or not right. you're going to vaccinate your child for measles and whether or not your child is going to get measles and contract it to other children is like, okay, we're now starting to kind of see the implications of these things. And right. I think that, you know, me like uh, physical autonomy and choice and freedom are like at the highest I like, I, I hold those in the highest regard and like mandated vaccines is like Orwellian, totally Orwellian, like mandated vaccines are Orwellian, um, just because it's a literal injection into you. Um, right. And, but then the question becomes like this whole coronavirus thing is essentially for me, what it is bringing to the surface is okay, I've been an anarchist for so long and I really deeply believe that people are cooperative and collaborative and good. And I know that there are outliers for all of that, but we have to take collective action sometimes. That is in our tribes, like with the vaccines, like literally does our neighborhood have herd immunity, which it from my research, it sounds like you have to have 95% immunity to have herd immunity. Depends, depends on the virus or it depends on what you're immunizing against. It has everything to do with the infectiousness yeah. of the underlying uh-huh. condition. Yeah. So sometimes it's 80%, sometimes it's 95, you know, so it, it, it usually you want it to be better than a coin toss by a fair amount. So yeah, for sure. But it's, it's, um, it's bringing up the question of like, okay, if we're going to take, if we need collective action and collective decision-making, which it's very obvious that we do, you know, like if there's an asteroid heading to earth, what the fuck do we do? If there's a infectious pandemic, that could wipe out a huge number of mm-hmm. our, of humanity and inflict global suffering on a scale that is uh, difficult to imagine. Mm-hmm. Then 
How do we take collective decision-making? How do we take collective action? And how do we do that without descending into some dark dystopian Orwellian nightmare where the government shows up like they did in China and throws everyone in the apartment buildings and literally welds the motherfucking doors closed. Mm-hmm. Right. That's mm-hmm. what happened in Wuhan. Like people mm-hmm. don't realize like China did a good job in containing the virus to two provinces in China. And I'm like, yeah, they literally welded the fucking doors closed on apartment buildings. Right. And it's like, on one hand, you're like, well, can't argue with results. And on the other hand, you're like, how do I want to be governed? Do I want to live in mm-hmm. that kind of world? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's really, it's really interesting to, to think about, um, you know, the power of individual choice. And I think that, that it is so important for individuals to kind of know their own limits. Like that's, that's really part of the part of the thing that I see a lot where it's like, well, you know, I can't, I can't see the circularity of the earth. So I'm just going to ignore everybody else on this one. So I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've talked about is like the, whether or not you trust the, the conventional wisdom And I think conventional wisdom is historically, you know, like evolutionarily a a really reasonable thing, right? If your neighbor thinks something, you know, that's a, that's a indicator about whether or not that thing is right. Right. Cause your neighbor has made it this far. And if everybody believes it, then, you know, they've made it this far. So there's like a functional correctness to beliefs held by lots of people. But at the same time, um, the the kind of recent the recent globalization of all of these things has also made the benefits of changing people's minds to benefit yourself that's become like too tempting and so i think there's like so many different nested problems to address that you know we basically all have to individually address all the time forever to start, to start chipping away at that problem. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, like, I, you know, like if you look at Oregon, right, like I went to Smith Rock State Park over the weekend and it was absolutely rammed. Nobody was doing anything about social distancing. And so Chelsea and I just, just ran off the side of the mountain instead of following the trail because the trail was just absolutely packed. And so it's like people, people were like, oh, I want to go play outside because, you know, I'm cooped up or whatever. And then they all hung out at Smith Rock State Park, which had waived the parking fees. So, it was, you know, Smith Rock State Park was like encouraging people to come visit. So people visited. And then on Monday, basically the, the Oregon stay-at-home order went out and all the state parks closed. Yeah. So it's, it's hard, right? You know, people, people very much follow the herd. And I, you know, I don't know how you, how you weigh those balances because you're absolutely right that, that this is absolutely an invitation to tyranny and making sure that that tyranny is extremely temporary is vital. 
Um, you know, and it, yeah, it, it would be much better if we could figure out how to make people behave better individually. Well, I think that's our next subject here. And as just a little segue, a little uh, tangent there, as you mentioned in such a eloquent way, this is such a giant invitation for tyranny and wow, how yes, it so is. And that's a terrifying part of this meta crisis. Authoritarianism is a big part of that and something I've been weary of for a really long time. And I read this great C.S. Lewis quote that says essentially that of all the types of tyranny, tyranny for our own benefit is the worst. Living under a robber baron is better because a robber baron's own motivations and needs wax and wane, whereas the people who are tyrannical for our own benefit can sleep at night with a clean conscience. <laughs> so, oh my God, that's totally the world we're living in. But the next thing that you're talking about is how do we figure out how to change the behavior of you know, the collective decision-making, the collective action, what is the herd doing? And I think that I'm positing that the underlying part, the, the, the innermost nest of these nested complex interdynamics here that control how people behave, I think that the innermost one is emotional and motivational. Those are the two innermost nested things. And I think that how we feel and why we do anything are at the core. And I think from a motivational standpoint, we're talking about win-lose, competitive uh, emotions that look like scarcity, not enoughness, that we've got to hoard toilet paper, that we are in this alone that, you know, stock up on ammunition and toilet paper as opposed to wine and condoms. And, you know, so like, I think that's, I think that's at the core and I'm in a deep inquiry as to how do we change people's, how do we help them understand that their motivational toolkit and their emotional toolkit are actually more important right now than mm -hmm. their political toolkit. Because I think that what I'm seeing online is this um, cling. These people are just clinging to the old world, mm -hmm. the old world, the old Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders world, the blue and red, the me and you, me versus you, the ideological warfare, the narrative warfare, this emotional push and pull, this polarity, duality. And it's like, I'm like, this whole thing just invigorated me that I was like, oh my God, maybe right now is the chance that they will not laugh when I tell them that we can change the world. Like that maybe we can look higher into like what is actually the highest potentiality of humanity and what do our interactions look like what are the principles in which we live by what how are we ruled you know like how are we governed yeah, right. what does our grocery store look like how fragile are our systems oh my god everyone wake the fuck up ah, now's your chance mm -hmm. and so yeah i mean i i definitely you know raised eyebrows when I said things along those lines. 
you know, people are like, oh, no, it's just a temporary change. Like, that's still a change, right? You get that, right? That temporary change is is change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly none of us want to be uh, barred from doing anything fun ever again. Of course. So, like, clearly there are aspects of it that, that need to be temporary. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I saw this really funny graph today that um, it was basically just this roller coaster graph, super high, super low, super high, super low. Mm-hmm. And at each peak and valley, it said, our lives will never be the same again. High, <laughs> low, our lives will never be the same again. Our lives will mm-hmm. never be the same again. Our lives mm-hmm. will never, you know, and it's like, it's so true. I've even like felt that in myself. Like even last night, I was like, kind of just like hungry and tired. And I was like fuck we're fucked you know and like mm-hmm. the government is about to become this tyrannical thing that i have always screamed at the top of my lungs to everyone ad nauseum that you know like they're that they're trying to that the government is growing and it's only a matter of time before the cycle of governance that has shown itself through the nazis and the soviets and the Khmer rouge that it grows and it serves the people and then it tilts over and it surrounds us all up and kills us and buries us and then it starts over. Um, so I think that's my biggest fear right now is authoritarianism. And I think that's the biggest fear for a lot of people. I think that there's other people who are so afraid of that, that they're actually missing a nuanced perspective that is both being afraid of authoritarianism and facing the facts of a global pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, there's a couple things that come up for me. And one of them is that it, it just is a, is a, at this point, a fact that the number of people who hold public office who are there uh, out of the good of their hearts to, to make the world a better place, to like make government work better, just seems to be going down. Mm-hmm. And and the number of people who are there who are rent seeking, who are just there to get theirs is increasing. And the, you know, it's, you know, your, your position is that that's an inevitable process of like aggregating, aggregating power Mm -hmm. um, backed up by violence. And I think that there's a strong case to be made for that. Um, I think it also has a lot to do with just the basics of how, how you get someone in power and how power works today. So I think one of the big reasons for that corruption has come from the poisoning of the, of the information, right? Where as soon as there's this cycle of that, it's just easy to mislead people and it's easy to convince people of what you want them to think, then it stops mattering what you actually do because nobody's paying attention to what you're doing. They're only paying attention to your messaging. And there's a, you know, it's really interesting. There's all these huge companies that go and do quote unquote good things. And the brazen ones, those, the, the websites explaining those things are under the marketing department, right? Like literally, Mm -hmm. you know, where the budget the budget line item for, oh, we have this cool scholarship is, is literally coming out of the marketing budget. And you're just, you're just like, really? <laughs> like that brazen that that's the, the exact underlying reality of what you're talking about is 
represented verbatim in your tax filings. Like that's crazy. Um, so, yeah, and that can come from outside too, you know, with the tax code in general. Sure, sure, totally. Yeah, but for for you know, Exxon Mobil to have some some cool project that you're like, oh, that sounds really good, and then you're like, oh, that's a marketing push. Okay, <laughs> cool. You know, that's what they want me to think, not what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. I think at the bottom of that is or one of the really strong factors in that is our need to offset cognitive overhead, Mm -hmm. right? To Mm -hmm. delegate to some outside entity, some bandwidth so that we don't have to investigate every brand, every product Mm -hmm. that we buy off of Mm -hmm. the grocery store shelves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is a insidious pattern that leads us to offsetting all of our power towards an external entity. I think that, you know, um, from a psychological development standpoint, I would say that in childhood, we are seeking the love of the parent, the authority. And I think that so often in our world, those needs are grossly undermet. And I think that we produce adults who are seeking the benevolence, the benevolent care and love from an exterior authority and they find that in the government. I think that that's why people find so much joy in taking causes. You know, the social justice movement in general has given people purpose in their lives and meaning in their lives, and they align it with this this parent authority, the government. And it's like... Well, so, so it's interesting that you know, you talk about delegating your delegating your sense making or like how you figure out what what is. And I think the the universal problem of being, you know, a finite creature is that there's only so much of the world that you can actually actively make sense of. And you know, depending on how smart you are, depending on how dedicated you are, depending on how much sleep you've gotten and how on top of your exercise and mental health routines you're on, like you can make sense of some fraction of it, you know, like, and I know personally that the difference between me on a good day and me on a bad day is a a huge difference. Uh So, so huge, you know, and so I have personally a lot of uh, faith in like my decision-making on good days. And so I basically delegate my decision-making on bad days to like good day, Dan. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, I mean, you know, and it's like, well, it's like the, the Dan, the Dan that decided to, to marry Devin, like that was a good day, Dan. And so when it's a hard day, it's like, and I'm not feeling it or whatever. Like, it's not as clear to me that that was the right decision. It's like, well, no, I was like very clear minded when I made this decision, you know, 
whenever I look at it on a good day, everything's great. And this is exactly where I belong. And this is exactly like the person that I need the most. And then on a, you know, a bad day, it's just like, what am I doing here? And it's like, all right, right. I made this decision in a good frame of mind. I'm not in a good frame of mind right now. So I'm just going to go with it, you know, and, and that same kind of process, I think, I mean, for me, that delegation also happens to, to other people, right? Like there are people who I trust in certain problem domains and they all come with caveats of like, this is their, this is their bias and this is their understanding. Uh, and this is, you know, their experience. And so I can, you know, leverage their expertise in one way or another, you know? And so it's, yeah, you know, not to follow me on my skis, you know, not to follow too closely behind me on my skis. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We might be going off of a cliff, Daniel. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Probably are. Yeah. And I, I like that. I like that just framework that you defer your decision to good day, Dan on the bad days. I like that. Yeah, right. I don't think that, uh, I think that that's a rare level of self-knowledge actually. And unfortunately, but what you were beginning to say of that the world is so complex that any one person can't fit all that shit in their head. And Mm -hmm. that's so true. I've long made the analogy that we are living in a um, IMAX VR 8K <laughs> experience, and we're trying to interpret it with Atari processors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the Jordan Greenhall uh, thing that I've been kind of chewing on, and I've said a number of times on my podcast, is he makes the he delineates between simple, complicated, and complex systems. Simple systems being like tic-tac-toe, where all of the possible outcomes of this tic-tac-toe system could be written on a single sheet of paper. A five-year-old can study and iterate to understand the rules and engage in the system. A complicated system is something like a Boeing 777, where we have myriad different systems that are all complicated and are all put together. There is a finite and concrete set of parameters around this thing. Like it can be recreated. Mm-hmm. It can, you can write a instruction manual on it and you can have a comprehensive understanding of every part and it is externally designed. It Mm -hmm. doesn't change over time. Mm -hmm. Okay, a complex system is something that is self-organizing. It is emergent. It is evolving. It changes over time. It Mm -hmm. does not have external design. It is self-organizing. This is things like our bodies, our minds, the weather, the ecology, the economy, um, And for 15,000 years, humans have been trying to manage these complex systems like our health and our economy and society, interpersonal dynamics with complicated systems. And as we know by the tax code or we know by the size of the government that as time goes on, complex becomes more complex and humans make complicated 
more and more complicated trying to deal with complex. Mm -hmm. And I agree. I don't think that any of us can totally hold our hold reality in our heads. Although we tend to have that cognitive bias abound <laughs> that we all like have a fucking, that we all have a firm grasp on reality, which seems exceedingly far from the truth. But I don't know. Tell me what you think about these, these complex systems and how we try to mitigate them with these complicated systems. Yeah. I mean, it's really like the way that I frame a lot of things is like, what are the inputs and what are the outputs? Mm -hmm. That's a very like programmer thing for me to think about, you know, that's like, so if I look at the economy as, as a, as a complex system, there's the inputs, which are more, I mean, there are, there are a couple of like numbers, right. That are the inputs of like, how, how much does the fed print or how easy is it to, to make more money? And then there's like the, the inputs that all of us kind of participate in and, and the way that we interact with the system. And, and so the, the overall direction of it is, is really the, the thing that is super interesting. So the overall direction of evolution is to basically minimize entropy, to make the most of the energy that's coming in. So if there's a, a place where energy is, is going to waste, there's probably some piece of biology that is trying its best to use that. And if they're not, it's because, you know, it's just not hospitable or, or whatever, you know, so you have the more hospitable places where you have very little, like extra, extra energy going to waste. And then you have kind of big, vast deserts where there's lots of energy around, but just nobody's, nobody can use it because the requisite pieces aren't there. Uh -huh. And so I think the, the thing that I find myself thinking about a lot is like, what is the direction of, of humanity? What is the direction of the economy? What is the direction of that system? Because it's nested inside of the broader life thing. Like all of the humans on the planet have, have agreed to participate in this economy that is nested inside of the ecology. And the challenge with that is that all of a sudden we've kind of changed directions from like, what are the niches for creatures to inhabit? And what are the, what are the sources of waste and what are the, the ways that we can become more efficient? And it has become efficiency about monetary efficiency and not really like you know, how much, how much complexity can we build? It's like, how much money can we save? How much money can we make? And it becomes a lot more abstract. And I think that allows us to do this really amazing thing where, you know, a pencil costs 10 cents or whatever. And that's, that's a crazy feat, you know, that somebody plucked a tree out of the ground over here and somebody picked, you know, picked some carbon out of the earth somewhere else or made it in some other way. And then, shipped them around and fabricated them and put them together and then boxed them and then took them to staples in a pack of 12 and then sold it to you for a dollar like that. All of that's crazy. And, and on some level requires this global cooperation network of money 
you know, there's no, there's no equivalent in, in ecology, right? Like there's no natural system that has that level of, um, you know, like global, global transit and, and fabrication. But at the same time, you know, there's no economic equivalent to a lot of the regular systems in nature. You know, the, the, the hippopotamus and the bird, you know, eating the things off the hippopotamus, that kind of um, cooperative relationship is, is rarer in the, in the economic system. Is you know, it as if is in, it? in the, in my experience, you know, I, I spent some time as a, as a um, contractor, basically building people's products for them. And me and my business partner were really interested in like really amazing partnerships with, with whoever it was that we were working. And at the base of that, there was this financial relationship of we're going to build a thing for you and you're going to pay us money. And what, what basically drove us out of business was the fact that it was really difficult to find clients who were into the cooperative nature, the clients, you know, we found some really amazing clients, but they just like the, the fraction didn't pay our bills, you know? And so, so the relationship between a contractor and a, and a customer is basically the contractor is trying to do as little work as possible for the customer and the customer is trying to pay as little as possible for as much work as possible. And that's kind of the on in based on my experience, that's the more common relationship. And that's the like strict economic relationship. And if you kind of picture the equivalent with the, you know, whatever the bird on the back of the, uh, the hippopotamus, like that's a crazy relationship, you know, where, where the, the bird is like trying to extract as much value from the hippopotamus and the hippopotamus is trying to just get as much free labor out of the bird as possible. It's just like, it doesn't even make sense. Right? <laughs> they're just like, they're just like in it because, you know, hippopotamus has covered in, covered in gook or whatever. And the bird is like pecking it off and both of them are stoked. Right. And that, that win-win thing becomes more and more difficult. The more you become obsessed with the numbers, yeah. right? Like, and it was really easy for me and my business partner to, to keep our heads in this collaborative thing until we couldn't pay rent. And I was just like, well, we got to do something else. You yeah, know, like and, this, this didn't work. Yeah. And that reminds me of something that this Zachary Stein is saying in that podcast that I sent you, Zachary Stein's the author of education in a time between worlds. And he's talking about how mm. what we measure is what we like manifest. Like we measure what's important. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so by measuring the economic efficiencies of these things, we just end up squashing all the other parts of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, whether that's joy or whether that's creativity or whether that's whatever, you know, and so it takes a really conscious effort to focus on other things because the, the way that we've chosen, chosen to orient our society has to do with this like income outflow model, right? It's like you're, you're trying to maximize, maximize your bank balance by the time you die, which is just like, like what, you know, and that's kind of the default, the default mode. That's the default setting on the game. And that's, it's pretty easy to, to find sources that kind of push you out of that mode. And, and people have been doing that, 
you know, since the time of the Buddha, right? Like this is not a new concept of focusing on something other than the, the thing that is flashing brightly in front of your eyes, you know? Totally. And I think that this, that kind of just brings us full circle to like the motivational toolkit. Like why are we doing things and how are we measuring them? What is important? And I think that really is the heart of the silver lining of the coronavirus. That's why I have thanked the coronavirus in prayer Mm -hmm. for awakening the masses to what is important. Um, And I think that this motivational toolkit as a subject is something that we should continue to ruminate on. And let's uh, have another conversation here soon. I look forward to it. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Daniel. Thank you, Barry. It's always great to talk to you. Love you too. See you later. Yeah. Ciao.